0: chapter 6, verses 16 through to 35. We we, um, had the whole chapter, Matthew read the whole chapter for us last week um, to put it in context, but uh, we're just going to be focusing on that specific passage, 16 to 35. So you please stand um, out of honor for the Lord's word. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him in the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What what, what must be do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign will you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For, this, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we spoke about how Jesus fed the multitudes with miraculous Bread and fish that that he had actually created the bread and fish ex nihilo that he he created something out of nothing that he was able to to feed not just five thousand people it was five thousand men but probably close to twenty thousand people with just just a little boy's lunch and the people responded by wanting to force Jesus to become their king. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he wasn't going to to bow to their selfish, man-centered, earthly ideas of what he should be like. Because he is God the Son, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So in verse 14, they recognized him as the prophet. Not just a prophet, but the prophet, the one that was prophesied by Moses in Deuteronomy 18.15. They understood that the role of the messianic prophet was also to be that of a king. And so Jesus perceived that they wanted to to make him king by force. They, They expected him to deliver them from their Roman and to be able to to provide for their physical needs. Jesus is a king, but he's not a king on those terms or in that way or at that time. One day when Jesus returns, he will set up, I believe, his, his millennial reign on earth but his kingdom is ultimately a spiritual kingdom just prior to the crucifixion at the trial of jesus Pilate asked him directly are you the king of the jews and jesus told him my kingdom is not of this world nonetheless the soldiers mocked jesus saying that you are the king of the jews as they struck him and Pilate actually had the inscription king of the jews placed above the cross and the Jews were indignant about this and they they said they told Pilate don't say that Jesus is the king of the the Jews but that Jesus claimed to be king of the Jews but Pilate said what I have written I have written it's the worst irony that the Jews would hear at this point try to force Jesus to be their king when he actually was And then he would later be rejected by the people as their king, and then crucified by the Romans under the charge of king of the Jews. Jesus knew what was in their hearts, and he knew that his time had not yet come, so he withdrew up the mountain by himself. This is the Golan Heights. The Golan Heights has a a commanding view of the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding area. But this time, Jesus didn't even take the twelve with him. Matthew and Mark tells us this, that this was after he had dismissed the, the crowds by himself. And verses 16 to 21 uh, raised some questions that, that we would do well to ask ourselves. Are you watching your step? In Verses 16 to 21, Jesus performs yet another miracle. This one equally astounding as the feeding of the multitudes, but this one far less public. The same incident is recorded in Matthew fourteen verses twenty-two to thirty-three and Mark six verses forty-five to fifty-two, but Luke doesn't mention it. Doesn't mention it. In the evening, the twelve took a boat and headed west across the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. Now the Sea of Galilee is, is really more of a lake. It's got fresh water and it's actually relatively small. It's, it's only 166 square kilometers. It's about half the size of Okanagan Lake. But interestingly, the surrounding geography is very similar to that of, of the Okanagan Lake. If you've ever been on the lake here in an afternoon when the wind comes up suddenly and, and there's there's huge white caps On the waves, and and if you're in a small boat, it can be extremely dangerous. These are the same type of conditions that would that took place regularly on the Sea of Galilee. You see, the Sea of Galilee is quite low; it's about 600 feet below sea level. So the cool air would rush down from the higher land and replace the the warm, moist air over the lake, and would would whip the lake into a a a, a frothing mass. Of water, just the huge waves would spring up regularly. You can actually look on 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 YouTube and, and see videos of storms on 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 the the Sea of Galilee, and it really doesn't look that different from what we we can see on a windy afternoon on our own Okanagan Lake. This is what the disciples faced. A strong wind had turned the water into violent waves. Matthew tells us that the wind Was against them and marked that they were making way painfully. It was dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now there's a a little a literary device known as pathetic fallacy, in which inanimate objects, such as weather, actually reflect the mood of the stories. Like when somebody is is feeling when a main character in a story is feeling depressed and they look out the window and it's it's a dreary drizzly day. As we've already seen, John's gospel is rich with symbolism and that of darkness versus light is regularly repeated. As DA Carson explains, the darkness of night and the absence of Jesus are powerfully linked. We already saw this in John 3:12 when Nicodemus who failed to understand who Jesus was came to Jesus by night. And later on it's evident when when Judas leaves the last supper on his On his demonic errand to betray Jesus, John supplies the detail, and it was night. But this is not just some literary device. John is actually supplying this detail to show us what it was like for those disciples in the boat without Jesus. By the fourth watch of the night, somewhere around three in the morning, they had only gone 25 or 30 stadia. This is about 4.5. To 5.5 kilometers or three or four miles. They'd been in the boat for several hours and they'd only gone three or four miles. It's not a very good rate of speed. The distance across to Capernaum was about eight to ten kilometers or five or six miles, so they were only halfway across the lake. But these men were not land lovers. Many of them were experienced fishermen. They knew this lake. Well, they knew what it was capable of, they knew their way around a boat, but still they were making little progress. They'd only made it halfway. But then in the darkness they saw something. Through the, the gloom they saw a figure walking towards them, walking on the water. This this figure was actually walking on top of the wild waves. His progress wasn't being impeded by the wind and the water at all. He was walking, as Hendrickson explains, straight into the gale. And he was walking so fast, he was actually catching up with the boat. They were terrified. Mark tells us that Jesus meant to pass them by. But when they exclaimed, it's a ghost, they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus said to them, Take heart. It is I do not be afraid. Now Peter, who often leads off with his mouth, answered, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So Jesus says to Peter, Come. And Peter there actually got out of the boat and walked on the water towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And as he began to sink, he cried out, Oh, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hands and rescued Peter, rebuking him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? As soon as they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Jesus had performed yet another miracle, stopping the gale force winds. Mark says that they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now I wonder here, do we approach Jesus and what he does with hard hearts, like those disciples? Do we approach Jesus with, with hearts that have been softened by the Holy Spirit? Do we, like Peter, take our eyes off Jesus and get distracted by the wind and the waves? Do we get distracted by the circumstances of our lives and start to sink. One of my favorite hymns is, Be Still My Soul. And one of the lines says, Be still my soul, for the wind and waves still know the voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. Beloved, our Lord still rules the wind and the waves. God is sovereign over every circumstance of our lives. C. H. Spurgeon said that whether it's the, the planets tracking through the heavens or the speck of dust dancing in the sunlight that shines through your, through your window or the drop of spray off the bow of a steamboat, none can move a millimeter apart from the sovereign will of God. There is nothing that is too great or too small to escape God's notice and nothing that is too great or too small to escape affect God's to be to be controlled by God. Now John doesn't include this event, at least the the walking in the water, and presumably because it would distract from his primary focus. So let's go back to what John is saying here that of of showing who Jesus is through these events. We, We come back to this again and again. Remember this is why John wrote this book that you may believe that Jesus is Son of God, and that you may believing have life in His name. So in verse twenty, Jesus says to them, "It is I. Do not be afraid." Now our English Bibles really don't make this clear, but the Greek formation formulation is "ego eimi," which is "I am He." And this is one of the the many "I am" statements in John's Gospel. We'll see it again in John 6:35, "I am the bread of life." John 10:14. I am the good shepherd. And John 15, 1, I am the true vine. And if you understand your Bible and, and what's going on here and what Jesus is saying here, he is showing, and he'll show this later on even more explicitly, but he is showing that he is the I am. That Jesus is Yahweh. That he is the one who spoke to Moses out of the burning bush saying, tell them, I am. Send you to to them. Jesus is the I am. So after Jesus gets into the boat, he performs yet another miracle. The boat immediately arrived at their intended destination. So not only did Jesus walk on the water, not only did he enable Peter to walk on the water, not only did he calm the storm, but he also transported the little boat from the middle of the sea to the shore. So what's going on here? These aren't parlor tricks performed by Jesus in order to impress the disciples. Last night, James's brother Mark showed us some some feats of magic. I think it was probably the first time that there had been a magic show in this church. But but this wasn't... These weren't weren't just parlor tricks that Jesus was was doing. This wasn't sleight of hand. Jesus wasn't trying to impress the disciples. He wasn't trying to impress the crowd with his miracles. They were powerful demonstrations of his power over the elements and of his power over even time and space. That Jesus Christ is the omnipresent, omniscient, sovereign God, of the universe. He is omnipotent. Now the sea often stands for chaos in the scriptures, but it is always God in scriptures who stills the waves. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 89.9 God made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Psalm 107, 29 and 30. This is also reminiscent of the Exodus theme. As Moses had raised his staff, the Lord caused a mighty wind to blow on the Red Sea so that the waters divided and the people of Israel could cross safely to the other side. Now Jesus is showing his mastery over the wind and the waves, but the disciples didn't understand day Carson points out that verses 16 to 21 follow verses 1 to 15 in the same way that verses 59 to 71 follow verses 22 to 58 both show that the shift in focus on the one hand from the crowds then to the disciples and they show what the disciples are like without Jesus It shows that the the disciples need the sovereign intervention of Jesus Christ. Beloved, we too are inadequate, desperately inadequate without the sovereign intervention of Jesus. You can't come to him, let alone walk in his steps, unless he is revealing himself to you and empowering you to follow him. So are you watching your steps? Are you walking where Jesus walked with the eyes of faith? Or are you getting weighed down by your circumstances and taking your eyes off Jesus? Are you following him at all? Verses 22 to 26, the crowds come seeking for Jesus, and he essentially has a question for them. He asks, what are you looking for? We'd ask ourselves the same question. What are you, what are we looking for? The next day, the crowds realized that Jesus hadn't entered into the boat with his disciples, so they followed. After all, the going was easy now, though the waters have been calmed. So they got into boats, and they followed to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And Matthew adds that that when they crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret, And when the men of the place recognized him, they sent around to all that region and brought to him all who were sick and implored him that he might only touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. So these people are gathered around, many of the same people who had been seeking Jesus, looking for bread. Now there's another group of people there as well who are seeking Jesus for healing. And John says that they asked Jesus. Rabbi, when did you come here? They didn't understand how he could have gotten there since he didn't get into the boat with his disciples and no other boat to that point had left. And I'm sure they're wondering, because of the the storm, how they could have gotten across. And Jesus here knows what's going on in their hearts, so he doesn't even answer their question. He tells them in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So this is another one of these amen, amen, or verily, verily statements that Jesus is saying that draw attention. He has something very important to say, something very important to say to them, and something very important to say to us. They should have known that the signs that Jesus exhibited bore testimony to who he was. Jesus is saying to them that they aren't really interested in who he really is, but in who they want him to be. They wanted a king who could free them from their Roman occupiers. They wanted a miracle who could a miracle worker who could heal their sick and feed their physical hunger. Essentially, they wanted their felt needs met. Leon Morris explains they were looking in the wrong place for the bread from heaven. It was not a novel kind of manna. It was the one who came from heaven to give life, not only to Israel, but to the world. Beloved, there is no better search that you can enter into than that of seeking Jesus. Many churches are devoted to seeking him, the so-called seeker-sensitive movement. But there's a problem. people that they're targeting don't really exist. They don't exist. There are no seekers, at least in this sense of the the word. Paul, in his indictment against Jew and Gentile alike, said in Romans 3.10, no one seeks God. What these churches are doing is catering to felt needs. They're just like the Jews who were seeking Jesus because of their felt needs. And the messages in these churches are nothing more than motivational messages to help you fix the problems in your life. Offering you your best life now. Or offering you a sense of purpose. And and many of these churches are beginning to realize that this system is bankrupt. As some of their own leaders have said, that they realize that their their churches are are a mile wide and an inch deep. And as people who are really hungry for spiritual bread are leaving these churches because they're not getting fed. Mark Dever tells the story of, of going to Chicago and, and visiting Willow Creek and he said it was it was amazing that before they even went into the parking lot there was somebody directing them there was there were people directing them into the parking spot and then people holding the doors for them and, and people showing them to their seats, and and everybody was incredibly friendly. But he says then what happened is, is that the message was preached, and he said the message was weak as water. But then they went to Moody Church, and nobody really greeted them. And they sat there, and they heard an incredible message. But afterwards, they they wanted to have a a look around this this historic building. But but pretty much everybody had left. And one of the deacons came up to them and said, you're going to have to leave now. We want to lock up. And so what he was saying is is that if we could could get the the message of of this church, of Moody Church, and a way to really love people in these practical ways, we would be onto something. But the problem is in the the seeker-sensitive churches that they're acting as though the the methods are the means towards bringing people to salvation. Beloved, being nice to somebody never saved anybody. People are saved through the gospel, through the faithful proclamation of Jesus Christ. Not through any. But we do acknowledge that there really are people who are truly seeking Jesus, but it's almost always the small minority. These are those in whom the Holy Spirit has been at work, giving them spiritual appetites, not for earthly bread, but for the bread of heaven. Such people are seeking Jesus with the eyes of a pre-existing faith, a faith that has been given to them as the gift of God. Hebrews eleven six says, and without faith it is impossible to please him. For ever who for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. It's those who already believe in this way that are the true Christ seekers. Jesus said in Matthew seven seven, ask and it will be given to you; seek and you will find; knock and it will be open to you. Jesus is telling us that we are to go to God asking. Seeking and knocking, trusting that our Heavenly Father will give us what we need. Beloved, we have been raised with Christ, so we seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Colossians 3.1 So, beloved, we are the true seekers. When Jesus told the crowds, "You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you, were, you, were, you ate your fill of the loaves," he doesn't really sound very seeker-sensitive, does he? It almost sounds as if he's deliberately trying to offend them. And if you think he's doing so now, just wait until next week when we talk about how Jesus told them that, the, that he has that they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood he did so with the intended purpose of separating the sheep from the goats. He wanted to separate those who were truly seeking him from those who were only seeking him for an earthly blessing. We don't want to mix things up and and invite weeds into the church so that what happens is it just waters things down and, and to be negatively influenced. That brings us to the next question. What are you working for? In verses 27 to 30. Jesus says to them in verse 27, Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son Son of Man will give you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. It's so easy to get bogged down in the day in, Day out, get up, go to work, come home, go to bed, get up in the morning, and start all over again. Before you know it, 20 years have passed, and you haven't progressed. You haven't really grown in your faith. You haven't done, done much, if anything, to advance the kingdom of God. Just like the world, it's so easy to live as though this world was all there is. Make our investments here, laying treasures, laying up treasures on earth, which will eventually decay, showing where our heart's focus really is. This short this sort of attitude should be horrific to us. Jeremiah says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The two evils are on the one hand rejecting God, and on the other hand trying to find satisfaction in things instead of God himself. Maybe you too are seeking your satisfaction in things. Maybe you're trying to even find your your satisfaction in blessings from God instead of from God himself. Think for a moment about your prayer life. When you pray, is it it a perfunctory duty? Is it more of of a shopping list of requests than a time of intimate fellowship with your God? This will reveal where your focus lies. And I know that as we've been talking through with our our men's discipleship group, that I've been challenged in my own prayer life. I want more. I don't want to be satisfied just with with just a a superficial prayer time. Now, of course, not that it's, it's wrong to ask the Lord for the things that we need. This, too, is an act of worship, but we need to let our, our sense of need develop into understanding, understanding that it's only God himself who can satisfy. Jonathan Edwards wrote, I deem longings of soul after God and Christ, after ever more holiness, where my heart seemed to be full, ready to break. I spent most of my time in divine things year after year of walking alone in the woods and solitary places for meditation soliloquy and prayer and converse with God it was always my manner at such times to sing forth my contemplations prayer seemed to be as natural to me as the breath by which the inward, inward burnings of my heart had vent now I don't know about you but I get glimpses of this just little glimpses Jonathan Edwards lived there year after year. Now, Jonathan Edwards was just a man. Just a man. A human being like you and me. What was special about Jonathan Edwards was his God. And when he got a taste of who God really is, he wanted more. He wanted more. He he knew that that he had a hunger which would never be satisfied in this life. So he he strove to do everything that he could to draw close to God in Holy Communion. Is that something that you really want? Are you willing to let go of those things that distract you from having that type of of having a, a daily, regular knowledge of being fed with the very bread of heaven. If it's the case, then you need to start with prayer. Because, beloved, that is a prayer that God is going to delight, to grant you. Ask Him. Let's pray even now. Heavenly Father, Give us a spiritual hunger and a spiritual thirst to worship you as the God of our hearts. Lord, give us this appetite. We are so distracted with the things that can never satisfy. Feed us when we pray with the bread of Crowds pick up on Jesus's words here about not working for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life and they incorrectly draw the conclusion that Jesus is focusing on the type of work that they should be doing so they ask in verse 28 what must we do to be doing the works of God they miss the point entirely they miss the point entirely Jesus isn't focusing on the type of work but on the appropriate goal Like the rich young ruler in Luke eighteen, they're essentially saying, "What must I do to inherit eternal life?" They're saying, "We want eternal life. Tell us what God wants to do, and we'll do it." Now, please don't get me wrong. When 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 I talk about Jonathan Edwards or I talk about praying for these things, I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm not talking about about at the bottom, anything that we can do. The Bible teaches God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, but at the base of it, it's God's sovereignty. We're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. We can't do this. We can't change our hearts. We can't make ourselves want to love God more than we already do. We just have to acknowledge that the love that we ought to have is not there as it ought to be and cast ourselves on Christ, praying that God would do in us by his Holy Spirit what we could never do on our own. And that's where these crowds missed it. They're saying, what should we do? They entirely miss the fact that it is God who gives it. Jesus says to them, it is the Son of Man who gives it. And they miss the point that, that Jesus, it is on Jesus, on the Son, that, that the Father has set his seal of approval. So Jesus answers them in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. You don't have to work to earn your salvation. Just believe in Jesus. Just believe that he is truly the Son of God. Just believe in his substitutionary death. Just believe in his resurrection from the dead. Remember, that's why John wrote his gospel account, that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Paul wrote in Romans 4 4 and 5 now to the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly his faith is counted as righteousness salvation is by faith alone there is nothing that we can do to earn points with God there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more than Then he loves us at this very moment because he loves us, beloved. He loves us in Christ. What could we ever possibly do to add to what Christ has done for us? To add to the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Christ imputed to us. What could we ever do to add to that? Salvation is by faith alone. However, I need to say so that I can't be accused of antinomianism that all salvation is by faith alone. The salvation that comes by faith is never alone. As James says in James 2.18, I will show you my faith by my works. The works don't save, but they are the evidence of truth. So as as I've talked about these things this morning, are are you being convicted in your hearts about the reality of your relationship with Jesus Christ? I fear that there are those here who are deceiving themselves into thinking that they are genuinely saved. Now there are probably also people here who are genuinely but are doubting it. And if that's you, then then maybe the Holy Spirit is withdrawing a sense of assurance of salvation in order that you may come to repentance. That you would confess your sin to God. But in a group this size, there's almost guaranteed to be those who do not have genuine salvation. Now that the people, the crowds, understand what Jesus means here. So they ask him, Well, what sign do you do that we may believe in you? What work do you perform? This is incredible. Jesus has just miraculously fed many thousands of people. He has just healed their sick right there in front of them. He had just calmed the storm. Now, of course, the crowds didn't realize that, but they'd seen enough. He had seen plenty of signs. Earlier, he rebuked the signs, in, er, rebuked them in, in 11, 20, Luke 11:29. unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So that's in John 4. In Luke 11:29, 29, he, he indicted the crowd by saying, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Jesus is is three days and three nights in the earth. But miracles alone cannot produce true faith. Not even resurrection from the dead could produce true faith. It didn't for the Jews in the Exodus, and neither did it for these Jews either. So finally, Jesus Tells them exactly what the miracle was all about and from this we need to ask one final question what are you waiting for From verses 31 to 35 the people continue in verse 31 our fathers ate manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat now the crowds here are are feeding out of Jesus's hand no pun intended this is exactly where Jesus is conversation to go. He wanted them to see that Moses pointed to him. He wanted them to see that the exodus pointed to him. He wanted them to see that the manna pointed to him. He replied to them, verses 32 and 33, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And Jesus is going to continue. We'll talk about these verses next week, but in 49 to 51, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the true bread from heaven is infinitely better than the manna. They ate manna and they were hungry again. They ate manna, but they still died. This bread will feed them spiritually, and this bread will feed them eternally. And this is what the miracle was all about. The physical bread was meant to show them their spiritual need. Their natural hunger was meant to show them that they should be having a spiritual hunger. In Deuteronomy 8 3, we find out that this was the reason for the manna from heaven. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but lives by every word that comes from the mouth of does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The prophet Isaiah writes, in Isaiah 55, 2 and 3, Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you a, my everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Incline your ear to God and come to him. Listen to him that your soul may live. Now at first here the crowds seem to respond well. This seems like a good deal. They make a commitment. Sir, give us this bread always. A lot of churches at this point would have them sign a card raise their hand or walk an aisle. But they haven't yet counted the cost. Jesus continues in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. So what are you waiting for? Have you been awakened to your spiritual hunger, come to the bread of life. There are people here Who have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good people have never taken refuge in him what are you waiting for come to the bread of life there are people here who are starving themselves from fellowship with God and his church what are you waiting for be nourished by the bread of life there are people here who are discouraged and beaten down by the trials of life what are you waiting for Be strengthened by the bread of life. There are people here who are distracted by the cares of this world. What are you waiting for? Feast on the bread of life.